Welcome to Modern Practice. And on this episode, we'll continue our discussion about documenting spinal surgery. It's challenging, but we're covering how to successfully code for the various procedures. I'm your host, Dr. Tomas Villanueva, Senior Principal for Operation and Quality of Vision and Practicing Internist. And joining me again is Rachel Mack, Consulting Director for Clinical Documentation Improvement at Vizian. Rachel, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. So happy to be here again to talk more about spinal surgery. So actually, let's do a recap because we actually spoke about several things on the first episode. Can you give us a recap specifically on the documentation required for spinal surgery? Sure. So some of the things we talked about in our first episode were the reasons that patients end up having to have spinal surgery, the fact that these surgeries are <laughs> expanding, people are getting them done more and more frequently, and we don't quite have the surgeons to cover that growth, which again, typical across a couple of aspects of healthcare in America. Also, there are common reasons to have this surgery, less common reasons, and a lot of these patients have to go through quite a bit of conservative measures and treatment, and that surgeon has to document all that before they even meet criteria to be able to have this planned or elective surgery. What I found fascinating was that there's difficulty in coding for these procedures. Can you elaborate on that a bit? I would love to elaborate on that. So, these surgeries are difficult to code. And I'm saying this, again, I always say with all the love and kindness for the CDI specialists and the coders, these are daunting records because these operative reports are extensive, difficult to decipher, difficult to read. And again, a variety of reasons for them being tough to code. So I'm going to quote our current query practice brief. And it says, quote, it is the coder's responsibility to determine what the documentation in the medical record equates to in the PCS definitions. And by the way, that's for procedure coding, PCS. Oh, okay. Thank you. You're welcome. The physician is not expected to use the terms used in PCS code descriptions, nor is the coder required to query the physician when the correlation between the documentation and the defined PCS term is clear. So then they provide an example, not a spinal related one, but the example they provide is, quote, when a physician documents partial resection, the coder can independently correlate partial resection to the root operation excision without querying the physician for clarification. So, Tom, I hope for you, I hope for our listeners that's clear as mud. <laughs> I'm frowning. Yes, we are told the surgeon is not required by law to use the magic words. And we, as CDI specialists and coders, are not expected to query unnecessarily. So this rule in general tends to put CDI specialists and coders in a little bit of a predicament, more so than other procedure coding. So first of all, as a physician, I'm glad to hear that part. But in reality, I could say that there is a certain liberalism, if you will, on how it could be coded. I'm trying to be kind with my words. Very creative means of coding. Great question. At the end of the day, if a CDI specialist or a coder, typically a coder, because they are much better at PCS coding than a CDI specialist are, if they cannot get to the right code, they have no choice but to query. What usually happens is they are very used to their surgeon's documentation. They have had conversations with him. They have educated them to say, hey, if you are doing, and we're going to talk about this shortly, an anterior or a posterior approach or whatever it is, you have got to use your words. Otherwise, you're going to be getting questions from us all the time. Because there's a difference in not having to 
like you mentioned, and not having to use those magic words for PCS coding to not harass the physician constantly, as opposed to, I truly don't have enough documentation to even code this record. And I think there's a fine line with that sometimes. So even with that guidance from our query practice brief, sometimes it is what it is. And if somebody can't tell something, they're absolutely going to have to send a query for clarification. Yeah, I can definitely appreciate that. But going back to the creative coding, are there other coding predicaments here? There are lots of coding predicaments. And you just interrupt me anytime because there is just so much information I want to share. One of the most common spinal surgeries is, as we mentioned earlier, a spinal fusion. This is a surgical procedure for those of you listening that don't know, whereby two or more vertebra are fused to correct problems within that vertebra. The vertebra can be fused using bone grafting, genetically engineered bone substitute, and metal devices. So the goal of a spinal fusion is pain relief after those conservative treatments have failed. So Tom, your question, are there any coding predicaments here? One of the biggest challenges is figuring out if the patient's spinal fusion is an anterior versus a posterior approach. So when it comes to anterior and posterior, the data that we have now tells us up to about 85% of cervical fixation procedures in the U.S. are anterior and the remaining 15-ish percent are posterior. However, posterior procedures are gaining popularity. So we're expected to see a little bit more rise rapidly compared to anterior procedures. So more to come with that. But to code a spinal fusion, it is vital for the CDI specialist to know what portion of bone is being fused and what approach, either that anterior or posterior approach was taken to fuse that portion of bone. Because different portions of the bones or columns will result in separate codes modified by that anterior or posterior approach. So last comment on that, the body part then coded for a spinal vertebral joint or joints that are rendered immobile by a spinal fusion procedure that is classified by those spinal levels. There are distinct body part values for a single vertebral joint and for multiple joints at each spinal level. So that's a mouthful, but if multiple vertebral joints are fused, a separate procedure is coded for each vertebral joint that uses a different device and or qualifier. So typically these cases, they won't just have one PCS code on them, right? They'll have two, three, four, five, six PCS codes on them. So one other quick takeaway for the CDI specialists and the coders listening is if a fusion occurs in the body of that vertebrae, it's an anterior column, so anterior approach. So if it's tough to read these notes, just know oh, if this is in the body, it's anterior, check. You can complete your coding pathway and get the right PCS code. So again, that was a mouthful, Tom, but it's a challenge to code these records. And again, sometimes figure out which direction the surgeon is coming from. That's interesting to me. I, I hadn't really realized how dependent this whole is on just the surgeon's op note. Oh yeah, very, very dependent. And the DRG assignment is very dependent on getting those PCS codes right. I have a new realization for this. How about what does documentation look like when you're trying to do this for spinal surgery? What does it look like? So when these surgeons document on these cases, the most common DRGs that these patients are going to land in, there are more than four families of DRGs, but these are the most common. So DRGs 453, 454, and 455, the title of which is Combined Anterior and Posterior Spinal Fusion. You can even see in the title, right? You have to have those magic words to get to this DRG. 
Also, this DRG is a triplet. And for those non-CDI, non-coding folks on the call, that means it shifts with payment, with capture of a CC, a comorbid condition, and then it shifts again with establishing an MCC or a major comorbid condition. The next most common DRG is DRGs 456, 457, and 458, spinal fusion except cervical with spinal curvature, malignancy, infection, or extensive fusions. This is also a triplet DRG. One of the most common DRG families these patients are going to end up in is DRGs 459 and 460. This is spinal fusion except cervical. This is a paired DRG, meaning it only shifts with an MCC. And then lastly, Patients commonly are going to land in DRGs 471, 472, or 473. This is a cervical spinal fusion, which is also a triplet. Again, looking at the titles of these, you can see it's very important to know the location of these surgeries and the approach of these surgeries. So something important to know, and Tom, we already mentioned this, something important to know about these DRGs and why they require such a thorough CDI review is their DRG relative weights. Because these are surgical DRGs, that require a highly trained surgeon to perform, the DRG weights for these cases are very high. Not only that, there are large relative weight differences between each triplet. So why is that? Can you explain a little bit more? Yes. So one, it's the trained physician. Two, when these patients have either complications from the surgery, or let's say they are not planned, they're not an elective procedure, they come in urgently, emergently, these patients end up in the hospital for quite some time. So that big difference in DRG relative weight is also accompanied by a longer expected length of stay in the hospital. So let's kind of look at one of these. Let's look at DRGs 453, 454, and 455. That's combined anterior and posterior spinal fusion, that triplet. If a case codes to the base DRG for this without a CC or an MCC. Let's say the hospital for fun has a blended rate of 7,000 bucks, which is pretty middle of the road. That hospital is going to get paid 33,516 bucks for that case. However, if a CC is documented, and I'm going to talk about some query opportunity coming up here, but if a hyponatremia, an acute renal failure, a CKD stage four, if any of those are documented, either naturally documented or they're queried by CDI encoding, the payment increases from $33,516 to $42,636. Then again, if an MCC is captured, let's say a metabolic encephalopathy, an acute respiratory failure, severe malnutrition, that payment skyrockets to $64,083. So we are looking at, again, those big differences, not only in hospital payment, but in expected mortality and expected length of stay for that patient. Rachel, thanks for joining us. We'll continue our discussion in the next episode. And to our listeners, you can contact Rachel at her email address in the resource section of our podcast page. And if you have any additional questions pertaining to modern practice or simply want to send us your comments, please contact me at our email, modernpracticepodcast at visiantinc.com. We posted a link in our resource section as well. And please join us for other Modern Practice Podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, or send us your comments. And now, I'm Dr. Tomas Villanueva. Thanks for listening. <laughs>